the book of Philippians, please, in the chapter 3, and the verse 11. Philippians chapter 3, please, and the verse 11. I would like to speak to you under the title, Heaven on My Mind. Heaven on My Mind. Philippians, please, in chapter 3, verse 11, and we'll read through to the verse 21. Read from the verse 10, if you don't mind, just to get the context. That I may know how, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many be perfect, be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me. And mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven. From whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall change our vile body, and it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. We trust the Lord will bless the reading of his word to each of our hearts. Let's pray together before we consider the instructions. Our Father, we once again come into thy holy presence and we approach your throne just now, that high and holy throne. We approach it in our Savior's name. And we come just now to your precious word. And we plead with you that you would reveal the truth found within. We're here today and we have adoration in our hearts. We have sang our praises to you, O God, already. We have expressed our thanksgiving and both song and prayer. But we need also to hear from thee, O God. And we meet with a holy expectation that you will minister to us. 
So, Father, in these moments, may we know a real presence. May, as individuals, may we hear your voice speaking into each of our lives. Father, we so often pray this, but it's because we didn't want this. Make the book live. And let it live in us. Help now, O God, your servant, as I seek to proclaim and explain these truths. Father, I pray that only your voice would be remembered, and any time that is of me would be completely forgotten. Father, meet us now for your glory alone. And we ask this in the seat of your name. people who make an impact in the world invariably have a single-minded commitment to reaching their goals, whether that goal is to succeed in business or, or to win some sports championship, they're willing to do whatever it takes, to take whatever sacrifices are necessary for them to achieve. On the other hand, those people who are consumed with their own needs and comfort, well, they rarely really accomplish much. And the truth is, the same principles can be applied to the life of the child of God. There's no hidden secrets. There's no gimmicks. There's no shortcuts to a life that makes an impact in the world uh, for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ, who is the King of Heaven, gave the repeated command, Follow me. Follow me. Follow me. He said, Take up your cross and follow me. And you know, many noble servants of God have suffered much to reach the spiritual goals of Christ-likeness. Uh, they've even paid for it, some of them, with their very lives. And all of these noble servants had one thing in common. Uh, their own comfort was less important to them than that of becoming more like their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of them, they took up their cross and wholeheartedly followed the Lord. You know, there's a story told during the time of the Marian Martyrs in England, of a man who helped Tyndale, Tyndale translate the Bible. In fact, he finished it after Tyndale was martyred. He finished the work. And he went back to England when he thought it was safe to do so, and then Mary came to the throne. And this man, he was caught. And as told, as the story goes, this man, as he was brought through the streets to his death, he wasn't even given a moment to say goodbye to his wife and his children. And he was marched through the streets. And the testimony is that he was cast into the fire, but as he was cast into the fire, he just stood tall like an exclamation mark. Normally when someone was thrown into the fire, there would have been screams of pain. But this was a man who was a martyr who stood for Christ, and certainly Christ was with him in the flame. The story goes that as he marched through the streets that day, his face looked like he was marching to his wedding day. He knew that he was going to be with Christ. That's the sort of person who has heaven on their mind. That's the sort of person who makes it their one aim to have Christ and Christ-likeness, to live unto holiness as we are sang about. 
You know, if you were to have asked that man or many or more martyrs while they went to their deaths, they would have said this. If you could have just interviewed them or spoken to them moments before their death, why are you doing this? Why are you living like this? Why are you living like with that goal of Christ-likeness in your mind? And they might have said, well, I live with heaven on my mind. In fact, you can take it a step further than that. They lived with the king of heaven on their mind. Therefore, they left their mark on the church through their underlying devotion to him and their untiring efforts in the gospel, even in times when it was illegal to do so. And they realized that this earth was no longer their home. And they realized that, they, that, that, that these people who were spiritual giants, they simply said, my citizenship is in heaven. I don't belong here. That is the thrust of our passage as we come to it this afternoon. That is why we've entitled it Heaven on My Mind. Now I don't want to make the mistake of assuming that everyone who sits here in our family service is heaven bound and lives every day with heaven in view. And therefore, before we proceed through these verses, I felt pressed in my heart and I felt the weight of these verses through the week. Before the Lord, as I read these verses, I am obliged to ask the question, to which kingdom do you belong? Do you belong to the kingdom of heaven, or do you belong to the kingdom of destruction? Where is your citizenship found? You see, in these verses that we take time to consider, there are two opposing kingdoms that are described. Paul here provides the dramatic contrast between his description in verses 18 and 19 and his description in verses 20 and 21. It's the contrast between two groups. One of whom he describes as their end is destruction. Look at verse 19. He says, whose end is destruction. And you can read the opening phrase of verse 19 where he speaks of this destruction, people who are on their way to a lost eternity. And then he goes on, he describes those on the opposite camp and at the beginning of verse 20. And he says, for our conversation is in heaven. Now that word conversation would be better translated as citizenship. Our citizenship, those whose citizenship is in heaven. Can I ask you, are you sure you're heaven body? I'm not trying to make someone doubt their salvation. That's not my intention. But I'm asking you, did you say a prayer called the sinner's prayer and you're relying on that for your salvation? You see, salvation is much more than said words. It's a realization that I'm a filthy sinner, that I'm deserving of hell. It's the realization that Christ went to the cross and died for my sin, that he was born the wrath of God, that I can go free, that he took my punishment, and the way I've been living, that I need to repent in bitter tears. And in full realization of my need of Christ, and in faith, and in the finished work of Calvary, that leads me to pray the sinner's prayer. No words. My biggest fear in these days across the church is there's people sitting in pews and they think they're saved and they're not. It terrifies me. And as we go through these verses, it begs to ask the question, make it sure. Make it sure. Listen, if you're saved, you'll know and if you're saved, you're a citizen of heaven. 
And if you're a citizen of heaven, you'll strive to have the same attitude as Paul in verse 13 that we considered last week. What, he, what did he say? That's one thing I do. He, he reduced the Christian life to that one objective. Christians are to glorify God. And that can only be done if we're striving to become more and more like Christ. You see, when we engage in evangelism as the child of God, we're like the Lord who came to seek and see if that which was lost. As believers mature spiritually, they will grow in the grace and knowledge of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the experience of the believer should be what Peter describes in 1 Peter 2.24, dying to sin and living unto righteousness, therefore fulfilling the goal of becoming more like Christ who you know sin. Now last week we considered these verses about pressing towards the mark of Christ and the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And Paul has exhorted us to forget which is behind both the good and bad and press forward for the prize of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. And indeed to save Christ alone, to win Christ, to be found in Christ, to know Christ in the power of his resurrection, in the fellowship of his sufferings and being conformed unto his death. That's what Paul calls us to do in these verses. So our duty, we've seen already in past weeks as Christians, is to look to the future days. And by looking to the future, it will regulate the present to live with heaven on my mind. So let's take time and go through these verses and clean from God's word together. Four reasons why I should press on and live with heaven on my mind. Verse 17. Brethren, be followers together of me. And mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. I want you to see that we have an example to follow. An example to follow. Paul in the previous verses had explained that he had a passionate longing to do Christ. We know that. And Paul, he's not being egotistical here as he says, look at me and follow my example. The word example is the Greek word tapper. And it refers to an impression or a mark that's made by a blow. And it's an impression made by a signet ring or a seal. And Paul is saying that he has left the mark for others to follow. And if we're going to choose a role model or a hero in scripture, surely the Apostle Paul would be an excellent choice because of the example that he left. He left an impression on this world for Christ. Sam Gordon In his book on Philippians says the reason why Paul was able to give them such a gentle nudge was because of his closeness to Christ, his communion with Christ and his consecration to Christ. Alistair Begg says in verse 17, why would Paul be an example worth following? Simply because he himself was following Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1, he puts it expressly, he says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Therefore, the example that we are to one another is very important. Paul stood as an example and others looked up to him. And let me tell you something. Others are looking to you whether you give a good example or a bad example. I wonder are you on an example of godliness and holiness to those around you? Because there's someone looking at you this very day. Could be your child. Could be your husband. Could be your wife. 
could be your work colleague. Could be a fellow office bearer. Could be a fellow member. I don't know who it is, but we need to be aware that all of us as Christians have people who are looking to us as examples. Do they see Christ? You know, examples are a powerful force in spiritual things. Because if you read the Bible from cover to cover, and if you read all the sound theological books there are until the truths are coming out of your ears, you can read all about it, and you can read all about all these things, but you can, and then you can sit and think, well, what am I to do with all this? And you can sit down the book that you've read, and you, you can go, well, well, I probably ought to do that. But when you lift up the li- your life as a story for people to look at, and it's not that I ought to do it, but you live it, people look to you and they say, well, I want to do that. And when you look at other godly examples, and you see examples around you, it shows that you can live for Christ. To live as an example of truth is a scriptural thing. And that's why Christian biographies have a, such a powerful influence on my life and many Christians. Missionaries and great Christian leaders down through the chronicles of history to see men and women that show the possibility of following hard after God and winning the prize. It's when you see a man or woman do it and live for Christ and give their all for Christ that you sit there and go, I can do it too. Living as an example. You might even be led to say when you look at those people, I want to do it. You see, when you live as an example and others look at you, it makes the truth come alive. It's living truth. If you think about it for a moment, that's exactly what the life of the Lord Jesus Christ was. You see, God didn't just float down a book from Genesis to Revelation from the sky, but he wanted to give a revelation to you and to me. The Bible says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. For if he hadn't dwelt among us, we wouldn't have beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's pattern, not just to give us truth, but to personify truth. That the truth might be made alive in your life. So Paul says, look at my example and look at the example of others around you. But the question that springs out of the text to us. Is our union as an example to fellow believers? Paul was able to say, You can follow my example. I wonder would you be able to say the same? Would I be able to say the same? It's to do with integrity, folks. It's to do with integrity. It's to do with character. An example worth following. Second, Paul has a compassionate concern. A compassionate concern. Look at verse 18. For my walk of whom I have, for many walk of whom I have often told you often, now telling even weeping that they are the enemies of Christ, whose end is destruction. You see, I want to tell you something. As citizens of heaven, as people who are living in heaven in our mind, it doesn't mean uh, that we don't weep for those who are lost. Those who are headed for destruction. You see, it's dramatic terminology here. You'll notice he's, what he's concerned about in verse 18. He says, For as I have often told you before, and now I say again, that's how he says it, for as many walk of whom I have told you often, and I now tell you again. 
In other words, it's not simply that he repeats this out of just a mere sort of thing, the mantra that he says. He's reiterating for his readers the absolute essential need for us to have a heart for those who are lost and to have a heart for the believers. It's twofold. Because at the beginning of chapter 4, he expresses his love for them. And he tells the believers in Philippians that he loves them. And he's concerned about these false prophets that we read about at the beginning of the chapter of the chapter three. He's concerned about those who would infiltrate the church. These wolves in sheep's clothing that we've talked about so many times that they're infiltrating the church and they're causing the Philippian believers to stumble. And Paul warns them about these ones on their way to destruction, and he is so upset. So upset that these ones are influencing, but he's also upset that these ones are on their way to a lost eternity. It's twofold. And you can almost picture the scene. Because his heart, as he speaks about destruction, his heart breaks. <coughs> you know, from time to time you'll see people on television crying, and sometimes I get the distinct impression that they're fake tears. They aren't emotional at all, and it's just for dramatic effect. Do you think that's what Paul's doing here when he speaks about weeping? Do you think he says to the person who may have been writing down his letter as he dictates, do you think this would be a good point to say that I write about this for crying? You know, we can feel that. Could we manipulate them with the thought that we're tearful? Not at all. I can picture the scene in my mind's eye. Most likely he was dictated by Paul and there was a scribe or someone who wrote it down for him. And he may have been standing or he may have been sitting and he gets his scribe, the 17th verse, and he says, write this down, brethren. He follows the followers together with me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. Do you have that? Yes, of God. And he goes on, he says, for many walk with him and I told you often. And I tell you, and maybe there's a long pause. His companion writing for him looks across at Paul and says, Oh, he's gone again. When he looks across at Paul, his head's in his hands. His eyes are filled with tears. And they're falling down to the floor in front of him. And the scribe weeps and eventually he says, I think you should have it. See, this is very important. Because the things that he's about to say and the descriptions he's about to say about the individuals of the same to them, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, whose mind are unearthly things. Those broken hearted, and he speaks of their walk. And Christ describes them as wolves in sheep's clothing and these people that can cause so much damage to the Lord's name and the Lord's cause when they infiltrate churches. You see, he's referring to the individuals, your teachers who were coming around with high-sounding terminology and dramatic giftedness and they're seeking to infiltrate and influence the believers in the church of Philippi. And he says many of them are enemies of the cross of Christ. And you can check this with their integrity. The way you'll be able to understand their integrity is by finding out whether the example they set is in accord with what they say. 
You know, there's people right around this country and they're standing in pulpits and there's sheep, wolves, sheep, sheep and wolves and sheep's clothing. And they stand and they seem to say the right things. You'll see them all over the internet. You'll see their church services going out, supposed church services going out. And they'll say all the right things, but they, they don't live with integrity. And they just say all these high and mighty things and they seem so gifted. Yet, they're the sort of, that's the sort of person Paul weeps for because they're end his destruction. Why does Paul cry? Because he knows those people are headed for destruction. And he knows that they're sowing discord among the Philippian believers. Do you see what Paul says in verse 19? Their principal concern was their devil. That is, all sensual indulgences is not just to do for the devil. The world will eat, drink, and be merry lifestyle, living for the world. But Paul is about to remind us that we are citizens of heaven, our conduct must match our citizenship. Because those on their way to destruction, their conduct, ma- conduct matches their citizenship. Let me ask you in your daily affairs, in your normal routine, is it obvious you're a citizen of heaven? Can the waitress at the restaurant tell by the way you treat her that you're a citizen of heaven? Can the people in the motorway tell the difference by the way you drive? Does your conduct match your citizenship behind the doors of your home? Whose morals do you observe when you're away on a business trip with work? How do you treat others on the phone and at work? We're living with heaven on our mind. We will live for Christ in every way. We'll be examples. We'll have a compassionate concern about the truth. And a compassionate concern of those who are on their way to a lost eternity. But Paul goes on here in verse 20. He reminds us that we belong to heaven. Why should we live with heaven in mind? Because we belong to heaven. We don't belong here. Paul says, for our Conversation, better translated, citizenship, is in heaven. You know, the word citizenship is so important because we get our word politics from Paul is saying that our politics, our way of life, is in heaven. We belong to another country, a city that has foundations, whose build, has foundation, whose builder, whose architect and maker is God, and this is God's way of encouraging our hearts to follow the goal to to press on. Verse fourteen, because we're citizens of heaven, we belong to heaven. And because we're born again, we're born of heaven, we're part of his family, and we have life, the life of God in us. And Paul's saying we ought to therefore live like we're heaven bound. We ought to be driving towards that goal, not pitching up our tent in the earth. I mentioned as we began, one of my greatest fears is there's people who are sitting in churches thinking that they're heaven bound and they're not. And please, at this moment, I beg you, if you haven't listened to anything else, listen to me. If you never have heaven on your mind, if it's a place that you don't think about your decision making and how you spend money and how you spend your time and how you invest your energy, the possibility is 
And you must consider that you're not one of heaven's citizens. Paul's point is not just about the future. I think the main point is about the present in these verses. That our heavenly citizenship doesn't begin at death or when Christ comes again for the conversion. When we're converted and saved, we already are heavenly citizens. It means in our present day reality, in our conversation now, he's saying it's in heaven. And one has said it's because we're dropping the truths of eternity and immortality and heaven out of our thinking that we're fast becoming a generation of earthbound pagans. May that never be the case instead of us. The children of God are just passing through this wilderness and we're having fun. And we're going to look at this. I think it's his love. We're going to the place from whence also we look for the seed. The Lord Jesus Christ. What he's saying is as we live down there, we should live like it could be our last day because Christ could come at any moment. From that place called heaven. We must be living with him in spirit because any day, any day Christ could come. And if we live with heaven in mind and the Christ of heaven in mind, from whence also we look for the Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're looking with your eye in the eastern sky and telling you it will change the way you live. Why we should we live with heaven? on our minds well to be examples worth following that we may have a compassionate concern for those who are on their way to destruction we should live with heaven on our minds because we belong to heaven we're citizens of heaven but then we know that one day Christ will change us in this verse I can't get my head right around the beauty of this verse verse 21 Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Our only body speaks of. That's our present state. The, the body of our humiliation. There's nothing vile in the organic construction of our bodies. We were faithfully and wonderfully made. But our bodies have been humiliated and contaminated by sin. Therefore, the subject of disease and death, the body only stands the wear and tear of 70 odd years. Psalm 90, verse 10. Our earthly bodies are limited. That's really what that means. But our vile body, our lowly body, is going to change. It speaks of, it's going to be changed and be fashioned like onto his glorious body. I can't get my head around that. I don't think I'll ever understand that till I am glory. When we see him, we shall be like him. I don't think we'll ever fully understand what that means. But you see, if our lowly and vile body is our present state, his glorious body, that's the prospect. 
From the time he emerged from the womb, the Lord Jesus had a perfect body, free from any taint of sin, free from any disease, free from any deformity. And from the time he emerged from the tomb, the Lord Jesus, he had a glorified body, and it could appear and disappear. It could come and go, and and it could. It was on. There was no effect of space, matter, and time when he was risen again. Do you recall the body of his transfiguration splendor, the body of his resurrection wonder, the body of his ascension? What glory! And my body is to be something, somehow, like that. That's what this verse says. Can you see the glory of it? It's amazing. No more aching bones. No more swollen limbs. No more bad backs. No more dim eyes. His glorious body. No more sickness. No more sorrow. No more pain. John says we know that when he shall appear we shall be like him. We'll be given a real body. And it'll be a redeemed body. And it'll be a recognizable body. But how can we see, be sure that this will happen? Well, the verse finishes and it says, according to the working whereby he is able, even to subdue all things unto himself. How do we know this? Because of his power. According to the working whereby he is able. The world looks at the cold corpse in the coffin and says, nothing. Paul looks at the living Christ and says he's able to subdue all things unto himself. Unbelief looks at the corpse. Faith looks at the creator. Unbelief sees the dead body in a coffin. Faith sees a risen triumphant on the living Christ. Able to save, says Hebrews chapter 7. Able to suffer, says Hebrews chapter 2. Able to subdue, says Philippians chapter 3. The word subdue means to set an array, to put all things in place, and he's going to do that one day. How comforting it will be to see the returning Christ bring, to, bring order out of chaos in this world and fashion us as unto his glorious body. So I finish as I start. Which kingdom do you belong? Listen, I know you may have said a prayer when you read a letter. But make sure. Are you having for Because my heart is when I read this passage that it just terrifies me that there's some who think that I haven't bound them or not. And I'll just take a moment this afternoon and get on your knees. And take that away from that. I wonder, are you living as a citizen of heaven? Or are you bound for destruction?